So, I just found this. It has nothing to do with anything, but it made me laugh. So, <laughs> it's called for For Whom the Bell Tolls. There was a cathedral bell that went silent because the bell ringer had died. So, the pastor put out a call for a new one to come and apply. And the first day, a man with no arms came to apply. And the pastor said, but you have no arms to ring the bell. And he said, well, just watch. And the man... Uh, he then banged his head on the bell, and he hit the it so hard that he bounced out of the belfry and fell to the ground dead. People gathered around and and uh, asked who he was, and the man, pastor said, "I don't know, but his face uh, sure rings a bell." <laughs> <laughs> oh, but there's more. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it too. Okay, so anyways, uh, so the next day, uh, another man came and he said, I'm the man, the poor armless man's brother, and I'd like to apply. And so he pulled the rope, and the bell rang so hard that the man had a heart attack and died. So several church workers came up and asked who he was, and they said, I don't know, but he's a dead ringer for his brother. Anyways, well, it's great to be back after a rather long break, and it's not the cleanest break to come back in the middle of a three-chapter part where Paul is building a case that God is righteous and how he has dealt with Israel. But that's where we are. So we're jumping in in chapter 11. I remind you from chapter 9, verse 4, when Paul addresses uh, the descendants of Abram, he says, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises. So God had made very specific promises to his chosen people, Israel. Some were conditional, dependent on them obeying him. But the greatest promises God made to Abraham and his descendants were totally unconditional. And if God failed to keep these promises, then he would not be righteous and just. If you should study any Old Testament book, as you're going through a study, you see typically a promise, a reference to a future time in Israel's history where there's a kingdom and their Messiah is reigning. But those things have not been fulfilled. If God were indeed through with Israel, which is what the majority of all Christendom believe, but the reality is then his word and his promises cannot really be trusted. You can't just renegotiate all the promises and say they don't mean that at all. But that's sadly the case, and many theologically sound Bible-believing Christians think that the promises given to Israel have simply been canceled and given to the church instead. However, this is not what Paul believed or taught here in Romans 9-11. through That's not the biblical teaching by Paul as we begin this chapter, which states, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Paul dogmatically states that God is not through with Israel. Once again, I'm indebted to my husband, Stephen, this helpful book, God's Plan for Israel, because it's a concise study of Romans 9 through 11. In the first 10 verses of chapter 11, Paul argues that in spite of the truth that the nation of Israel had rejected their own promised Messiah when he came, God has not permanently rejected this people or nation. 
And to prove his point, he's going to give some clear evidence that Israel has never and is not, will never be cast away by God. And you may be thinking, I don't care. I'm not Jewish. You know, what's, what's it to me? But you know what? In the darkest moments of your life, in the nights of your life, you need to know that the promises of God are true. And they are believable. And they are, will be kept. He will never leave us or forsake us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Salvation means we are at peace with God and will never experience his wrath. And therefore, we can have the peace of God even in troubled times. All things really do work together for good to those that love him. Promise after promise can absolutely be relied upon and depended on because God keeps his word. We could not have that same assurance if God did not, does not keep his word to the covenant people, Israel. So let's look at Paul's argument and his evidence that proves God has not cast away his people. And the first argument is himself. Uh, God has not rejected his people. Paul is a Jewish man who's come to believe in Jesus. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. If God has actually rejected his people, then why is Paul a believer in Jesus? The fact that Paul is a believer proves God is not true with Jewish people. Paul goes on to list his Jewish credentials by proving his bloodline uh, as a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Most of you know that the country was divided and the northern kingdom were ten tribes. After the death of Solomon, this happened, and the only tribe to stay faithful to Judah was Benjamin. Their first king came from Benjamin, King Saul, his son Jonathan, Esther, and Mordecai. Anyways, it was an esteemed tribe, and that was Paul's tribe. How could God have rejected his people when Paul believed in Jesus? If God had canceled his promises to Israel and it was over, then how do you explain God working in the heart of this Jewish man to bring about his salvation? In spite of the unbelief of the nation of Israel, God has brought salvation to this one who once persecuted the church. A former blasphemer imprisoned those who embraced the gospel, yet God showed mercy and saved this Christ hater and brought him to salvation, so now he's devoted to Jesus. So Paul is a living illustration of mercy, of kindness, and patience of God to save sinners. And if God had totally rejected Israel, then he would not have done this work in the greatest rejecter of all, Paul. If he saved Paul, then he is not through saving other Jewish people who reject Christ as well. There has always been a remnant who believe, and that we studied in chapter 9. And for those of you who are new, all the lessons are recorded, all the messages, and you go to the church's website and go to resources, and you can find these messages if you were interested in hearing what's gone on in the past. But we've already seen that there's always only been a remnant, a small group of people within Israel who had the faith of their forefather Abraham, saving faith. Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The thought in the word rejected means not to cast away from oneself. God will never completely or permanently cast away those whom he foreknew. Now, foreknew is another word that's often misunderstood. It doesn't just mean God knew ahead of time. 
No, it speaks of a predetermined, pre-planned relationship of love. We read in Amos 3.2 that God said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families on the earth. Of course, God knows every family on earth, but what he meant here is the truth that Israel is the family he set his heart upon. So for God to foreknow his people means that he chose them to be the special people he put his love and affection upon. And God has not broken the promises that he made to this people. Paul then gives a clear example of what, uh, what happened in a crisis back in the days of Elijah. Elijah dealt with the wicked idolatry going on in Israel. I mean, he was heartbroken, and he cries out to the Lord, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He thought he was the only one faithful to the Lord in the whole country. And this is very dark time and wicked time in Israel's history where they're led by that wretched man Ahab and his wretched wife Jezebel. And the people have now made Baal worship their official religion and Elijah's calling for God to reject his people and to judge them. But God responds to him by having him experience a powerful wind and earthquake and fire. And though these things could kill, God made it clear that it was just it was his still small voice that he was calling out people for himself. First Kings 19 is the story. But the point is Elijah desired God to destroy Israel and to judge them. But God's heart was tender towards them. With his still small voice, he was reaching out to the remnant. And Elijah thought, as I said, he was the only one true to God. But God said, there are 7,000 other men who literally have not kissed Baal. So, the nation as a whole was unbelieving, but God did not destroy Israel back then because there was a believing remnant. What was true back in the days of Elijah is still true in Paul's day and today. Verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. <coughs> the point of the argument is to say that even though national Israel rejected their own Messiah, the first century church included many Jewish believers, and those believers are the remnant according to the election of grace. Just as the, rem the remnant in Elijah's day kept God from casting Israel away in judgment, so is the same thing true today and back in Paul's day. The fact that there is a chosen remnant proves that God has not rejected his nation. So in every generation, there has always been Jewish believers throughout the church age. That still small voice continues to call the remnant of Jewish believers to Christ. And the remnant has always responded to God's grace. And like their father Abraham, by faith, believe God, and it's credited to them as righteousness. Verse 6 says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Religious Jewish people, just like religious Gentile people, try to earn God's favor by the things that they do. The remnant who trust Christ for salvation are saved by grace. It's always been that way. They understand that it is grace, God's unmerited favor, and it is grace alone that makes salvation possible. Human works could never merit heaven or be the basis for how anybody could ever be right with God. 
remember chapter one, there's, or three, there's none righteous, no, not one. There isn't anybody who's good enough. It is based on what Christ did on the behalf of sinners. You know what? He really didn't need to come and die on the cross and bear all of the wrath of God and go through all the horrors that he went through if you can go to heaven because you do things that please God and earn but why did he come it doesn't even make sense it's either your faith is in what Christ accomplished for you on the cross or your faith is in you think you're good enough to earn your way to heaven and you are not there is no one who is so the present condition of Israel then is seen in verses 7 through 10 Paul gives his third evidence to argue that God has not rejected Israel. What is the present state of Israel? He says, what then? What Israel was seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So the overall spiritual condition of the majority of people in Israel is that they are spiritually blinded. And the word here for blindness means to cover with a thick skin or to harden by covering with a callus. In other words, they have become insensitive to the gospel because God has hardened them. In other words, God hardened Israel after they hardened their own hearts. The same thing we saw in our study here regarding Pharaoh. But then Paul quotes from Moses and David to show that a chosen remnant always existed within a God-hardened nation. Paul is proving that Israel's rejection of the Messiah did not result in God permanently setting aside the nation. You rejected your Messiah, that's it. You had your chance. Rather, it was their rejection of their own Messiah that really was the consummation of their blindness from the get-go their hardness of heart. It was not the cause of them rejecting. It was really the culmination of all of their history. When you read through the Gospels, you see how Jesus did amazing miracles and healing, and yet the religious leaders, they couldn't see any good in him. They attributed his work to Satan. Uh, this was not new in the history of Israel. Look how many prophets God sent to them and they treated by killing them. The majority in Israel had always been disobedient and rebellious to God's truth just as all of mankind is. Unbelief was the state of the majority, yet God never canceled his promises to Israel. The national rejection of their own Messiah could never cancel those promises he made either. God has not rejected Israel, otherwise Jewish believers like Paul would not exist. Israel has always had only a small remnant in the nation who had the saving faith of their forefather Abraham. So the hardness of heart that plagued this people throughout their whole history was hardened even more by God so that when Jesus came, they didn't see who he was at all. Since the reality of Israel's unbelief had never canceled out God's promises to the nation, their rejection of Messiah certainly wasn't going to be the thing that canceled that either. So why did Israel stumble? Verse 11 says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, the Jewish people, jealous. Did Israel stumble to the point that they're never going to recover? That's it. 
I'm done with you. Was God through with them forever? Paul says, God forbid. It is only a temporary setting aside during this church age. God has a divine purpose in everything. And we see his sovereign purpose in starting verse 11. The truth of the matter is um, that through the fall of Israel and their failure to recognize the Messiah, salvation has come to you and me, to the Gentile world. We see in Acts that the message of salvation went out to the Gentile world once the nation of Israel refused. Jesus said this was going to happen in Matthew 21, 43. He said, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And the church was born on the day of Pentecost. And God temporarily set aside Israel as his plan was to call out a remnant of Jewish people and large masses of numbers of Gentile people to build his new creation, the body of Christ, the church. The truth is that God has used Israel's unbelief to reach Gentiles in order to build his church. And through the stumbling of Israel, God has used the message of salvation that has come to Gentiles as a means to make Jewish people jealous of what true believing Gentiles have. Many Jewish people long for the peace and assurance and hope of sins being forgiven that they know other people have who have faith and a walk with Christ. Verse 12, now if their transgression is riches for the world, which it is, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, if Israel's loss is the gain for people like you and me, then what riches must be in store for the whole world when God restores the Jewish nation to her place of privilege? Paul is referring to the blessings that the world will all experience in the millennial kingdom. After the Jewish nation turns to their Messiah, we'll see in verse 26, then the curse will be lifted, there will be peace on this planet, at every level, Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. A Shekinah glory will fill the temple. Israel and the church will reign with Christ and righteousness will reign. That's what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 11. That's what Revelation 22 through, or 20 through 22 is about. Paul goes on to explain that God has called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul saw the salvation of Gentiles as the means by which some Jewish people would believe in, in Jesus. He saw that the Gentile believers would be the most effective tool in reaching Jewish people, which is the opposite. Most people think, oh, a Jewish person can really lead another Jewish person to faith. But it's more often a Gentile leading a Jewish person to faith. Transformed Gentile believers are the greatest tool in reaching unbelieving Jewish people as they observe a quality of life that they would long to have. Verse 15, Paul states, For it is their rejection, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Every believer should have a heart for Jewish evangelism because it is connected with the entire future redemptive plan of God. And the best way this can be done is to live a godly life before unbelieving Jewish acquaintances, friends, family, praying for this salvation provoking them to jealousy by your godly life. Such was the case with my husband, who was at a university and a young man who had just become a believer in Jesus himself, shared with him and had a life and a testimony as just a brand new believer that 
was so attractive to, to my husband that he wanted what he had. And that is who God used along with his word to draw a, a Jewish person to himself. So Israel will be restored. We see this starting in verse 16, and it's a proper understanding, really, of God's grace. Paul now uses two analogies to illustrate truth about Israel being restored. In the Old Testament, when dough was prepared for bread, a little piece was to be given to the Lord, set apart, holy, set apart to the Lord. And the idea was that the whole lump of dough really belonged to God. <clears throat> and then there was the tree root, the olive tree, that was holy to the Lord, it would have branches that are also set apart for the Lord. The point Paul is making is that since Israel is rooted in the promises from God to Abraham, the nation is set apart by God for, for God. And that would mean her stumbling as a nation would be temporary. And during this time of temporary setting aside of Israel, other branches are grafted in to the olive tree. Gentile believers are the branches from wild olive trees that are grafted into cultivated trees. The warning given here is to Gentiles to beware of religious pride and thinking you're better than Jewish people who don't get it and who have been blind in their sin. Never think that you are more deserving of salvation than Jewish people who rejected their Messiah. Just like the olive tree had unbelieving Jews cut off, so the church has unbelieving Gentiles who will be cut off. And just like we've seen that all Israel is not Israel, so it's true today, all in Christendom are not Christians and are not really a part of the body of Christ. Though they think they are, but they don't even know how it is that you're all right with God. And since it is possible for the false Gentile church to be cut off because of unbelief, it's also possible for Israel to be grafted back in should she come to believe the gospel message. And then we see in verse 23, it is possible for Israel to be restored. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and are grafted contrary to nature, that is you Gentiles, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. The point Paul is making is that since God can do an unnatural thing, like graft Gentiles into a good cultivated olive tree with Israel as its source, then how easy for him to graft back natural branches into their own olive tree where they were, should have been and are now back to by faith. So the promise of God that Israel will be restored is quite clear in the next verses. There is no place for Gentiles to look down on Israel because of their fact that they're spiritually blind. Yet indeed, there is a blindness that one day will end. Notice verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. A mystery is a new truth that wasn't revealed earlier in the Old Testament. And the fullness of the Gentiles is this present church age, which Gentiles are being saved. When the church is, uh, when the last Gentile comes to believe in Jesus, then the trump will sound, the dead in Christ will rise, 
And we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be forever with the Lord. And then begins the horrific seven-year tribulation period. And in that tribulation period, God's going to refocus again on the nation of Israel. And that is bringing the culmination of all of history to its end. Notice verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved, just as, as it is written. He's not saying all is Jewish people have ever lived will be saved. No, he's talking about those alive at the end of the tribulation. And when the whole world gathers to destroy Israel, which we read about in Revelation, and we also see in Zechariah that two-thirds of the Jewish population will be put to death during the tribulation period because Antichrist is Satan's spokesman. And anything that God loves, Satan hates. And he's always sought to destroy the Jewish nation, whether it was Haman, you know, in the book of Esther or Hitler. It's, he's always hated everything that God loves. And if he can destroy Israel, then God can't fulfill his promises and he's not really a righteous God. So he wants to obliterate Israel, and that is what he will attempt to do in the tribulation. But Jesus Christ will come riding back on a white horse and destroy all of Israel's nation, and they'll look on him whom they have pierced, and they will recognize their Messiah. Those who are alive, and they will weep and mourn because they'll understand finally. And this will be in that time period, the time of the Jacob's great trouble. That's talking about in Jeremiah and so many places, the horrors of the tribulation. But there will be a remnant, and they will know as a nation. And that's why Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. Every Jewish person alive at the end of the tribulation will see him. And verse 27 says, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's what he made a promise long ago at the start. The blindness will be lifted and God's word will be fulfilled as he brings Israel under the new covenant that provides forgiveness of sin. I'll give them a new heart, a heart of flesh. God is faithful to keep all of his promises. He will forgive the sins of repentant Israel. Therefore, God is righteous in all of his dealings with Israel. Verse 29 states, For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. The truth presented here by Paul tells us that when God promised Abraham he would make a great nation of him and gave him all of the specific promises, it's irrevocable. God's purposes for Israel will happen in spite of their present blindness. The unbelief of Israel has resulted in countless Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. There is no place for uh, pride in any believer who makes up the church. Instead, there ought to be an attitude of humility that God would show mercy to us. And that's where Paul just comes to this amazing response at the end of this chapter. The only the only reason any believe the gospel is because of the mercy of God. There is no place for a Gentile believers to have pride, thinking they're better. That's why he says, "For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience." So there also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. Paul's trying to make it clear that the kindness of God towards both Jews and Gentiles is based solely on his mercy. God has revealed his mercy. I remind you, back through all the centuries of mankind, the only way to be right with God was if you became a Jewish proselyte. The rest of the world were pagans worshiping whatever it is 
they wanted to worship. They were vile, blinded. Well, they're what our news broadcast is all about, and that is the world we live in, and that's, that's what it is. For God has shut up, in all, shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. I have to just close with this last section. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him belongs glory forever and ever. What else can anyone do? Who else could formulate such a plan? Call people. Give them promises. They reject him. The message goes to the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world shares with the Jewish people. Some are saved. I mean, all of this is beyond anything we can comprehend. And God is righteous, and God has never violated his righteousness, and he can be depended on. And no matter how crazy you think your life is and what's out of control and not in right as it should be, if you know Jesus Christ, he is a God of order. He has it all under his control. Nothing's happening that slipped away from him. Even a whole nation rejecting him, he still has this all worked out, and it's all going to work out. And he is faithful, and he is true, and you can trust him. Jesus cleanses us from our sin when we trust him. He declares us to be holy and righteous when we believe his sacrifice was for us personally. This, and the requirement is the only response which we'll see next week. Present your body, a living and holy sacrifice to God. Total commitment. What else can we do? We love him. We give him our all. Every day we lay ourselves on the altar because we are not our own. He is a loving God who demands our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving. He is kind. He is good. Believe who he is. Trust him. He is worthy. He is so powerful and so sovereign. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are so amazing and mighty, and through all the centuries of all of mankind, you have been orchestrating all that has happened. You are saving Jew and Gentile alike. You will turn your attention one day again to Israel. Lord, I thank you that the promises you made to them, you will fulfill. I thank you that I can have personal and real assurance of the promises you've made to every believer in the scriptures you will keep. Lord, may each woman here find comfort and encouragement in the fact that you are faithful and good and wise. We thank you and praise you for the sovereign plan that you figured all out and that you will bring to pass. Thank you for letting us be a part of learning your mind. In Jesus' name, amen.